0: Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at
1: capella.edu. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we're going to talk about double words and the rules of conversation. But before we get started, I want to remind you that I have three LinkedIn learning courses about better writing, punctuation, and commonly confused words. They're great for everyone, but they're especially great for professors because lots of universities provide free access through their libraries. So if you have students who are struggling with some specific writing problem, like writing in active voice or using semicolons, you can refer them to one of my quick two or three minute videos on just that topic. And you can bookmark specific videos to make them easy to find every time you have students with those common problems. Just search for Grammar Girl at LinkedIn Learning at your library, and all three courses should pop up. Have you ever been writing, and suddenly you realize you've made a sentence with two words in a row, like had had, or that that, and wondered what happened, asking like David Byrne of the Talking Heads, well, how did I get here? Well, don't worry, it doesn't mean you're a bad writer it usually just means you've stumbled on a situation where you're using a word that can legitimately be different parts of speech. For example, the word that can be a pronoun, an adjective, a conjunction, and an adverb. So it makes sense that sometimes the word can appear twice in a row in a grammatically correct sentence. So let's talk about the different kinds of double words that can arise as you're writing your first drafts and how to fix them. Because even though they aren't incorrect— They are distracting. As I said, the word that has many roles, and double thats tend to occur after you use it as a conjunction. In this example, that as a conjunction is followed by that as an adjective. His indifference to fresh brains confirmed my suspicion that that man is only pretending to be a zombie. I've used that to identify a specific man, that man. Two ways to fix it are to use a more specific adjective or to replace the initial pronoun with the description. I could write, His indifference to fresh brains confirmed my suspicion that the shuffling man is only pretending to be a zombie. Or, That man's indifference to fresh brains confirmed my suspicion that he is only pretending to be a zombie. And of course, in that second example, you could even delete the second that. In this example, that as a conjunction is followed by that as an adverb. It's still a matter of conjecture that that much chocolate is what made squiggly sick. There, I used that to emphasize how much chocolate it took to make squiggly sick. That much. Two ways to fix it are to insert a gerund after the conjunction or to rewrite it with a different conjunction it's still a matter of conjecture that eating that much chocolate is what made squiggly sick. Or, people are still wondering whether eating that much chocolate is what made squiggly sick. Here's another common problem. Had is a word that plays different roles and can accidentally appear twice in a row in a grammatically correct sentence. It happens when you use the verb to have in the past perfect tense. Past perfect tense sentences describe two things that happened in the past. Julia had only seen mimes on TV before she went to Paris. Bernard had run every day until he hurt his foot. You can see that if you substitute the past tense of the verb to have in similar sentences, you'll end up with a had had. Julia had had gouda cheese before she went to Paris. Bernard had had a flight booked for a marathon before he got hurt. The best way to eliminate the double had is usually to use a different past tense verb. Julia had tried gouda cheese before she went to Paris, and Bernard had booked a flight for a marathon before he got hurt. Much like the had-had problem, you can get a double do in a grammatically correct sentence when one do is acting like a helping verb, for example, for emphasis, and another do is acting like an action verb. Imagine this conversation. Julia, you always scratch your chin when you want to ask a question. Bernard, wow, I do do that, don't I? The first do is a helping verb that adds emphasis, and the second do describes the action. Often you can simply eliminate the verb that adds emphasis. It changes the feeling of the sentence a little, but it eliminates the distracting double word. Wow, I do that, don't I? When a name or title starts with the word the, and you want to use it in a sentence following the, it's okay to just drop the capitalized word from the title. I got the information from the New York Times reporter. I wish I could meet the Hunger Games cast. According to the Chicago Manual of Style, you can also drop the article from the title when it makes your sentence sound better. Who took my Hunger Games poster? Unlike the other double words we've considered, sometimes the double is, is grammatically correct, and sometimes it's wrong— in speech, it's not uncommon to hear someone say something like, the problem is, is that it's almost dark outside. But that's wrong and clunky, and you shouldn't use it in standard written English. But it's an easy fix just to delete one of the "is's." The problem is that it's almost dark outside. A statement like this, though, actually is grammatically correct. What this is, is a mess. What this is is the subject of the sentence, and it's followed by a predicate that starts with is. It's easier to see when you consider a sentence with a similar subject that uses a different verb. Instead of what this is, let's try what this merits as a subject. What this merits is a rewrite. You can eliminate the first double is by changing the subject. Instead of what this is is a mess, just try this is a mess. Or if for some reason you want the wordiness, like maybe it's dialogue and fiction or something like that, you could try, what we have here is a mess. That segment was written by me.
0: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Next, I have a segment by Valerie Fridland. For every instance where we say exactly what we mean, there are probably just as many times when we require our co-conversationalists to get our drift without our saying it explicitly. For instance, say you ask me what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, and I reply with, you might want to have an umbrella. Notice that I did not really provide a direct answer. I never said that it was expected to rain. Instead, my answer led you to infer that it might rain. If you ended up dragging an umbrella around all day and it never rained, you couldn't really accuse me of giving you bad information about the weather since all I said was to bring an umbrella. After all, you were the one who jumped to conclusions. But you might still feel a little bit misled and with good reason, because you assumed I was playing by the same rules you were. Now, by rules here, I mean the set of rules that we all implicitly follow, which make for smooth and successful conversations. We may not think about it very often, but there have to be rules that help regulate our conversations, or if we do things like speak in soliloquies or say random and unrelated things… And though you may not have ever been taught these rules the same way you're taught other ones like spelling rules or rules for verb conjugation in Spanish, you learned them as part of your communicative competence, a fancy way of referring to the socially appropriate knowledge we learn as speakers of a language. In 1975, philosopher Paul Grice wrote an influential article called Logic and Conversation, proposing that conversation is a norm or rule-governed activity. He suggested that to be successful, conversationalists have to approach the task of conversation with the idea of being maximally cooperative, a guiding principle he termed the cooperative principle. Now, the cooperative principle just tells us to be as cooperative as possible in broad fashion. But Bryce also came up with four sub-rules, or what he called maxims, that provide more detail about how we go about being cooperative, and also about how we make sense of others' responses that on the surface might not seem all that cooperative. For example, when Ardvark asks Squiggly to go fishing on Saturday— and Squiggly tells him he has to wash his hair, why is it that Aardvark feels rejected? Well, on the surface, hair washing and fishing aren't related at all, and it would appear that Squiggly did not appropriately respond to Aardvark's question. But because of the underlying rules of conversation that we've learned to follow, Aardvark understands the implied meaning, making something called a conversational implicature. One of the rules Grice proposed is the maxim of relation. This rule states that we should make what we say pertinent to the situation and conversation at hand. For instance, if I told you I failed my math test and you responded by saying that your dog bit the mailman, it's hard to see how that relates at all to how I did on my math test. So to make our conversation effective, you instead know that you need to say something that relates to what I said like offering commiserating consolation or by telling me your own math score. Of course, in the hair-washing example above, it might also seem the reply wasn't relevant to the question. After all, how does hair-washing relate to fishing? But herein lies the additional rub. In addition to following the maxims, Grice proposes that we can also flout them meaning we say something that signals to our listener to look beyond the literal meaning of what we said to a more implied meaning, one like, I can't go fishing because I have a whole hair-washing spa thing planned for tonight which will keep me otherwise occupied. Why would we bother flouting instead of just saying no? Well, often to be polite, as saying something more direct and explicit like, heck no, I have no interest in going fishing with you, might not come across as very cooperative or kind. By flouting the maxim, we're able to let people come to their own conclusions and save face. The next maxim is the maxim of quality, which basically says we shouldn't say something false or for which we lack evidence. In other words, if you tell me Aardvark got the highest grade on the math test, I assume that you have some information that leads you to this conclusion and you aren't just proclaiming it so. When we engage in conversation, we assume that we can take what others say at face value unless we understand that they're flouting the maxim for some intended effect like sarcasm or irony, like when they tell us that the weight at the DMV wasn't bad at all while rolling their eyes. Of course, bad actors can and sometimes do exploit our socialized willingness to trust what others say, and this is why lying feels like such a violation. There's also the maxim of quantity, a maxim that tells us to be as informative as is needed in the specific situation. In a nutshell, this means we need to be detailed enough without going overboard. For instance, if Ardvark asks Squiggly if he knows the time— and Squiggly simply answers with, yes, I do, then that's a violation of the maxim of quantity, and Aardvark can rightfully find Squiggly annoying. Part of what it means to have cooperative conversations is to understand the norms for what constitutes the appropriate amount of information to share. And as part of this cultural knowledge, Squiggly knows that asking someone if they know the time is really a request for telling them the time. So squiggly was violating the maxim of quantity, likely for comedic effect. On the flip side, if you've ever had the sense that someone overshares details or is giving you TMI, then it's probably because you sense that they're violating the maxim of quantity. The final and perhaps most interesting maxim is the maxim of manner. This maxim is really more about how we choose to say something, as it guides us to make sure we're being clear, brief, organized, and unambiguous in what we say. So, for instance, when Ardvark says, Squiggly came to the party and I left, we take it to mean that Ardvark left after Squiggly showed up, not before, because of the way Ardvark presented the information. And given that Squiggly blew off Aardvark's fishing invitation earlier, who can blame Aardvark for avoiding Squiggly? Again, when people flout this maxim by doing something like spelling out the word walk as W-A-L-K in front of their dogs, which is more vague and inefficient than just saying the word, it's a signal to a listener that they need to look deeper for how to make sense of it in the context. For example, that the speaker was trying to avoid overexciting the pup. Of course, these maxims are guides, not do-or-die rules, so people don't always follow them. But when people overtly violate them by lying, by over-talking, or being disorganized and vague in how they package what they say, they don't tend to have a lot of subsequent conversations. That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno, and the author of the forthcoming book, Like Literally, Dude, about all the speech habits we love to hate. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com or on Twitter as Fridland Valerie. Next, I have a familect story.
0: Good morning, Grammar Girl. Here's another Familex story for you. Like many two-year-olds, my now 17-year-old daughter liked to eat goldfish crackers as a snack. Not remembering the name of the snack, she asked for cookie fish. It only took a minute to figure out what she was asking for, and her name for the treat was so charming that it stuck. We still call the delicious yellow crackers cookie fish. Thank you. Bye.
1: Thank you. That was so cute. It made me laugh. If you want to share the story of your act, a family dialect, or a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 83 3214 girl and I might play it on the show. Grammar Girl is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. Our intern is Cameron Lacey. And our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings, who loves to cuddle her Black Lab deputy. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find me on Twitter and YouTube as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening.
0: Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu